When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell this story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Welcome back to The Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite history, mythology, philosophy, and how those subjects bubble up into our popular story podcast. As always, I am very excited to be back with another Midnight Myth. Why? It's July 2021. Everybody I know and love is vaccinated, which means I can see people. My son is six months old. The 4th of July just happened. The Phillies are on a winning streak Life is going really good, and I am back with my beautiful, beautiful part of me, wife, Laurel, wow, I can't talk, to do one of the best movies of the 90s, arguably one of the best movies of the century. It is a classic. It has been on our to-do list for a very long time, and we've been looking back at our previous episodes We did two with Francis Ford Coppola, and they were very intense, in particular, The Apocalypse Now. And then we did our Midnight Myth Gauntlet as kind of a buffer, and that was a little more fun. And we wanted to kind of marry our love for our tour directors and writers, crafting cinema that is both enjoyable, but also a piece of high art. Yet we wanted to keep it light and fun and not something so depressing as Apocalypse Now. And as we are bouncing back and forth ideas, what is the perfect thing for us to go to? We were reviewing a spreadsheet that we have with lots of different ideas. And Laurel looks at me and goes, how about the big Lebowski? And I replied, you're Lebowski. I'm the dude. Well, sometimes there's a movie, and it's the movie for its time and place. And that movie is The Big Lebowski. And the time and place is right here and right now on the Midnight Myth podcast. I am also super excited to talk about this. Uh, The Big Lebowski has been important to me for a long time. I'm a huge Coen Brothers fan. And I was one of those nerds who had a Big Lebowski poster in my dorm room 
right next to, oddly enough, my poster of Audrey Hepburn, because I've always been a woman of discerning and yet eclectic tastes. So I'm excited to go back and revisit this movie from 1998, how important it was to, I think, both of us formatively as we were growing up, and also how relevant it remains today. It And I really can't wait to talk about this movie, too. This movie is a incredibly popular B has inspired a American contemporary postmodernist religion called Dudism. C a lot of people have said a lot of things about this movie. So we are going to try to put our unique midnight myth lens to this movie and maybe talk about a few things that haven't been really focused on, but at the same time, we're not going to reinvent the wheel. There's a lot of good, sitting right at the surface of the Big Lebowski that we're going to mine. And we know a lot of people love this movie. So after you listen to it, Midnight Myth listeners, tell us what you think. Which, by the way, Laurel, do your thing. Yeah, so we would love to hear from you. We're all over social media. We're on Twitter, at The Midnight Myth. We're on Facebook, and we're on Instagram, at Midnight Myth Podcast. And we're on the World Wide Web at MidnightMyth.com. That's also where you can drop us a line. You can sign up for our Patreon. You can hit up our merch store. All of that you can find at MidnightMyth.com. Also, earlier this week, we had a fantastic experience going on the Geek Salad podcast, one of their YouTube live streams doing a retro movie review of the great, great classic Ferris Bueller's Day Off. So definitely check that out. We will link it in the show notes. We had such a fantastic conversation and cannot recommend listening to those guys enough. Mike and Andy are just fantastic guys to hang out with. And it was great to talk about this movie that we all love and we all got to learn something from. Yeah, we could have, and we did Ferris Bueller's day off. We could have probably stayed and done that YouTube stream all night. That's yeah, how much it was fun so we were much having. Fun. So please check out their YouTube channel. And actually, if you like the midnight myth, you should subscribe and listen to Geek Salad. It is a witty, fun conversation about all things geek. It's a truly great podcast and super honored to collaborate with them. Absolutely. It's one of the reasons we didn't have an episode last week because we were preparing for our time with uh, Andy and Mike. And gone are the days where we can do multiple podcasting things at once because obviously we have our son, Arthur, who's six months and that takes up most of our time. Yep. Anyway, on with the Big Lebowski, shall we start with our briefest of brief recaps? Take it away. The Big Lebowski features a man named The Dude who has also the name Jeff Lebowski. When he is confused for The Big Lebowski, another Lebowski who shares his name, whose trophy wife Bunny owes people money, and two goons, thinking they're at The Big Lebowski house, go to The Dude's house, they beat him up, and they pee on his rug. The dude who is a bowler with his friends, Walter and Donnie, then decides to confront the big Lebowski and ask for some financial compensation for the rug, which tied the room together. The big Lebowski calls him a bum and dismisses him from his office. That does not stop the dude from stealing a rug on his way out. Things get a little crazy, so I'm going to fast forward this. The rug belongs to Maud, who is the daughter of the big Lebowski, and she wants the rug back, so she attacks the dude and steals the rug back. Meanwhile, Bunny gets kidnapped and the big Lebowski asks the dude to deliver the ransom money to the German nihilists so that they can get big, they could get Bunny back. 
However, the dude brings his buddy, Walter, who decides they're going to do a ringer and not give the money. Now there is a missing suitcase that presumably has a million dollars and the dude is on the case. Where is Bunny? Where is this million dollars? He's playing everyone off of themselves as he's sipping white Russians and attending his landlord's very bizarre modern dance recital. At the end of it, the dude and Walter come to believe that the big Lebowski doesn't actually have any money. He stole money from his own charity and that his daughter Maud is actually the rich one and he kept the million dollars. There is a fight between the Lebowski, or I'm sorry, between the dude, Walter, and Donnie and the nihilist, and poor Donnie, their bowling partner, dies. There's a character named Jesus who wears blue and purple, who is actually a pederast, who is challenging them to bowling. Walter pulls a gun on a pacifist. All sorts of crazy hijinks happen. There are multiple dream sequences, one after the dude gets punched by Maud's goons, another one after a uh, porn star, a porn, pro- porn producer, pardon me, drugs the dude. He gets beat up by cops. He gets thrown out of a cab. This movie has everything and the kitchen sink. It is a complex web of plot where this one character named the dude seems to be being pulled against his will into it after asking for financial uh, money after his rug gets pissed on that ultimately ends with Donnie dead, the dude bowling. Whew. And sometimes you eat the bar and sometimes, well, the bar eats you. I probably left so many details out of that because the, the, the plot of this movie is very complicated. Yeah, it's bananas. And f- for what it's worth, the plot kind of doesn't entirely matter. There are certainly elements of it that do matter, but for the purposes of what the movie is really trying to tell us, we don't have to follow every single detail of the plot. And it's something that on subsequent rewatches becomes clearer and clearer. There are lots of clues as to what's really going on, but what really matters is the jokes. What really matters is the characters. What really matters is the relationships. And the plot itself is kind of the background of the sublime and surreal nature of the film. You know, one thing that when you talk to people about screenwriting, they always want you to have an active protagonist. The protagonist makes a choice that they can't come back from, and this raises the dramatic stakes of the script. Think of it when Bruce Wayne finally decides to become Batman. They've made a choice, they can't go back from it, it raises the stakes. A lot of good movies have this. When Michael Corleone decides he's going to work with his father and follow in his footsteps to become the godfather, and then when he makes the decision to kill his brother-in-law. You know, all of these things are active protagonists making choices that they can't turn back from. Well, what the Coen brothers and the Big Lebowski have proven, you can make a really amazing protagonist who makes one choice, which is to go to the Big Lebowski and ask for you know, money for his rug or for a replacement rug. The rest of the time, the plot is pulling him through it. And at no point in time, does it ever feel like bad writing? Are you not on the dude's side? it, It goes to tell you that there's conventional wisdom in how you make a movie and how you craft a hero. And then there are those like the Coen brothers who can take that conventional wisdom, throw it out the door and still make a protagonist so beloved People have turned it into a religion. 
Yeah, and you get the absolute sense that they are totally aware of the fact that they are bucking this convention. What is the opening shot but a tumbleweed blowing, a, blowing across the uh, the highways of Los Angeles? And there is this constant cheeky recognition of the fact that this protagonist is really just being tumbled along by the winds of fate or the winds of other people's choices. So the PI in the end I'm thinking of who admires uh, Jeffrey Lebowski, who admires the dude and is like, look at you, you're pitting everybody against each other. You're playing both sides. You're genius. It's beautiful work. And the dude is like, what? I'm kind of just going along for the ride. So there is absolutely uh, this inversion of the convention of the active protagonist, but it's so uh, clearly conscious on the part of the filmmakers that we, we go on the ride with him. I completely and totally agree with that. I guess we're already hitting our, our next question. Do you think this movie holds up? Yes, but tell me why. Yeah, absolutely this movie holds up. Like you said, there is a religion that's based around it. And while I'm not somebody who has joined dudism or is a priest of the dude, I can understand why you would look up to this character. Even though he's presented as a slacker, someone who kind of walks around in his PJs and a bathrobe, somebody who writes a check for 69 cents for half and half, he's not necessarily someone that you should admire or aspire to be, but something about his attitude and the way that he moves through life is admirable, is aspirational. So it's really kind of a weird, incongruous uh, world where the dude is not necessarily the person who you want to be, but you would like to be like him. I don't know if I'm explaining that right. That aside, you know, it's going to be tough for us to talk about and analyze a movie that holds the record for the most number of F-bombs ever in one film without saying any F-bombs since we stopped uh, cursing on our podcast after we got pregnant. But uh, it's just so funny. And it's funny in this really bleak and deadpan kind of way that a lot of the jokes take you multiple watches to, to really become funny, but then they are just like, they stick with you for years and years and years. Like, that's just like your opinion, man. That's not necessarily a funny line out of context, but somehow that has become, I think, one of the most hysterical moments in cinema history. And the movie is filled with those. The marmot... Uh, the rug really tying the room together. Here's what happens when you F a stranger in the A. Like, these lines are not funny on their own, but they are so, uh, they come together to make this little complex web of weird comedy that just is outstanding. Yeah, it's tough to try to, in a podcast, not being a comedian, explain why something is funny. Oh, yeah. It's really tall order. But I'm going to give my two cents on the humor of the big Lebowski and then kind of say that writ large about the Coen brothers and the way they write. One thing that I learned in preparation to the podcast, there was almost no ad-libbing in this movie at all. Compare that to a movie like Anchorman, which is also a very funny movie where the actors are encouraged to kind of go off, let like tap into their comedic genius and let these great comedians just riff on each other, film it all, and then edit it together to what makes sense. And that's a way to make a great comedy movie when you have Will Ferrell and Steve Carell and Paul Rudd in it. Then there's funny movies like Mel Brooks that are very traditionally st structured jokes. 
They have a punchline. They have a buildup. They've got a payoff. And they're really like traditionally what you think of, of like, oh, what's good slapstick comedy with poop and fart jokes? You think Mel Brooks, he's got it all like he's got it in spades. The Coen brothers don't do humor in that respect. Their humor, and I think why it takes multiple viewings of The Big Lebowski and in most of their movies, comes from a cheeky sense of clever. And irony, right? Yeah, it's all it's always ironic. Uh, expand on that. Yeah, I think that there's something about Coen Brothers' humor that, yeah, there's a cheeky sense of clever, and it's always built organically out of the writing, and it's organic to the characters, but the reason it's funny is that somebody is doing or saying something that is sort of perpendicular to the situation. They're not doing the expected thing in the situation. They're doing something surprising. So Maud coming out and saying, my work has been seen as strongly vaginal. Even the word itself makes some men uncomfortable. Vagina. Hilarious. Completely deadpanned. There's absolutely no uh, like comic overplaying that she's doing there. She is just saying it as is, and it is, it's hysterical because we don't expect a woman to come up to a man's face and just say, vagina. It's just brilliant. And that sense of irony, how the, uh, the dialogue and the situation or the image and the situation are never uh, never lined up with our expectation is I think why the Coen brothers are funny. I agree. And I think they always have the right actors for their roles. Always. Every Coen brothers movie I have ever watched that. And, and wherever you rate a particular Coen brothers movie on the scale from good to genius. And I think all of their movies are somewhere on the scale between good and genius. Every single one of them, they have the right actor in the right role delivering it exactly as it should be to maximize the effect, whether it is an action movie, a tragedy, or it's a bizarre surrealistic affair, or it's an off-the-walls ironic comedy. And I think The Big Lebowski is probably the best example of perfect actors cast in the Coen brothers. Only John Goodman could be Walter. Oh, my God. Only Jeff Bridges could be the dude. You know? And only sweet, sweet Steve Buscemi could be sweet, sweet Prince Donnie. And, uh, oh, the guy who plays Jesus. I'm blanking on his name. John Turturro, oh, yeah. yeah. Of course. That is just... Tiny role, but he's genius. And I learned that is the one role where they're like, kind of like, just do your thing. Because a lot of his comedy is physical. Yeah. So his, like, backwards dance, him licking the ball, bowling ball, him shining the bowling ball very, like he's massaging his own, you know, private parts... All of that was just him just going wild on set. Amazing. So we agree. It holds up. Yeah. It's very funny. It's a classic. It is one of the best movies of the 90s, and I think it's a movie that people are going to like for a very, very long time. The Big Lebowski holds up. Where should we turn our eye in terms of analysis? Well, I think one place to start, maybe not the only place to start, but one place to start is where this film lies in the canon of American cinema, because it's this kind of interesting clash, and again, we're talking about irony, between uh, two kinds of uniquely American cinematic genres, and those are film noir and the Western. So like I said, the opening sequence is with Western music and a tumbleweed going across Los Angeles, but we also have 
the title, The Big Lebowski, which is a riff on The Big Sleep, which is a famous uh, Raymond Chandler novel that was adapted to a, uh, a film with Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall, really snappy, witty dialogue, really classic film noir. And we have the presence of this cowboy who appears as this sort of magical figure imparting wisdom and bringing in the kind of old West to Los Angeles, while we also have the ironic presence of the hard-boiled detective as it is completely reinvented in the dude who is swept along into an intricate mystery that sweeps him up with femme fatales and uh, private investigators and whatnot. So there's this interesting clash, I think, between these two very American genres. And that's kind of a place I would be interested in starting. Why do we have uh, this very... American cinematic influence on a story that is very modern, is not necessarily about the past, but is certainly preoccupied with the past. What does the introduction of Western and film noir give us in terms of the meaning of the film? Yeah, so I'd like to, in that respect, I'd like to back up a few steps yeah. and flesh that out, if, if you'll permit me. Of course. And we're going to delve pretty deep, at least at this part, into philosophy. Because there is a word that crops up very early in this, and that is nihilism. Yeah. We see the German ex-porn star, ex-musician in the pool, and Buddy says he's a nihilist. This comes back again. They self-identify as nihilists. They say they believe in nothing. We believe in nothing, Mr. Lebowski, nothing. And they end up, uh, you know, end up getting into this kidnapping plot, trying to make a few extra bucks, even though they've never actually kidnapped anyone. And these German nihilists also convince a friend of theirs that it's okay to chop off their toe for this scam. So it made me think of nihilism as a theme within this movie and and how to kind of extrapolate the lessons of nihilism philosophically vis-a-vis -vis the Coen brothers. If there's one philosophical connective tissue amongst many Coen brothers' properties, it is this pervasive sense of meaninglessness. This idea that these things happen, the dude is a passive protagonist, things are happening around him, pushing it through the story, and whether or not these things have any significance. It is inherently nihilistic. So I went on a journey to try to understand nihilism, where it came from, what it means, why do the Coen brothers play with nihilism, and how can we understand the Big Lebowski if it is a nihilistic movie or not? So that's where I'd like to begin, if that sounds good to you. Yeah, absolutely. So let's go back. Nihilism comes from the word, from the Latin word nihil, which means nothing. So it's the Latin word for nothing. No one really knows who coined the term nihilism. There's a lot of historians and philosophers that have debated it, but it's popped up in, in writing as far back as 1787. The first academic use of the term nihilism came from someone named Frederick Jacobi, but that's really not where it became popular. The term nihilism became popular when a Russian author named Ivan Trugenev, and I'm sorry if I misspelled that, he wrote a book called Fathers and Sons in 1862. And in it, there was a scientist, a scientist character that was described as a nihilist. And this book was 
incredibly popular, and the term nihilism became associated with political nihilism, with anti-Tsar activists who were trying to bring down the Russian monarchy who claimed to be political nihilists. And that word was very well used quite a bit in that period and used quite a bit, and it became synonymous with disorder, with anarchy, with meaninglessness. It wasn't until Friedrich Nietzsche where the word gained what we now think of it, nihilism as a a coherent philosophy of meaninglessness. And so in that, there are a few different sort of tenements of nihilism. There's the original nihilism that comes from Friedrich Nietzsche. It then evolves into existential nihilism, and then it goes to what's called anti-foundationalist nihilism. Friedrich Nietzsche and his use of the word and the term nihilism is wildly debated and often misunderstood. Some have called Friedrich Nietzsche the founder of nihilism, and that the philosophy espoused by Nietzsche is inherently nihilistic. But that's that's kind of a misinterpretation of how Nietzsche characterized and used nihilism. For one, we think of nihilism, if I asked you to define it, how would you define it, Laurel? Uh, I would say nihilism is the belief that existence is meaningless and therefore there's kind of nothing we can do. That's what most people would believe. Just sort of a colloquial expression of nihilism, yeah. Yeah, and nihilism is used so much within popular culture, and it's used so much by politicians, and it's typically used as a negative descriptor. Right. So, for example, say what you want about the tenements of German nationalist socialist dude, but at least it's a creed. Which is a Walter Sobchak quote. (laughs) Walter says this when he finds out that the Germans are nihilists. So he's like you're better off being a Nazi than a nihilist because at least the Nazis believe in something. Yikes. We even have these Nazis or these nihilists say we believe in nothing. And generally speaking, the term nihilism is used as such. However, as I came to learn, that's not what Friedrich Nietzsche meant. And that's not why he used the term nihilism at all. In fact, Friedrich Nietzsche believed nihilism was anything that or any philosophy, any culture, any system that had at its center the devaluation of life. It is inherently life-denying. If it devalues life itself, it is a form of nihilism. To Friedrich Nietzsche, Platonism, the philosophical foundation of Christianity, and much of Western civilization was inherently nihilistic. The reason it was is it posits that there is another world, a more real world, in which true beauty, all of these things exist as one, and this world is a pale copy of it. And hence it defined the way that one gets to the real world, not this fake world that we are in, through moral action. And Nietzsche defined that as inherently nihilistic because it devalued the life of now. You look like you want to say something. Yeah, I was going to say, if I remember correctly, Nietzsche was much more interested in what was life-affirming. He was interested in what he called amor fati, the love of fate, so you could embrace whether your life was meaningful or meaningless. And we've talked about him before as preferring the sort of Dionysian lifestyle to the Apollonian 
uh, saying he wanted to be a tragic man rather than an overly reasonable man. And in fact, it is Nietzsche who uh, created the conflict of the Apollonian versus the Dionysian. Right. The Apollo versus Dionysus. Life affirming versus life denying. So if the world is nihilistic in its nature and if Western civilization based upon Plato and then Christianity is nihilistic in nature, what happens when you take that other world away? What happens when God is dead? Where then do we go? And this is what Nietzsche was defining as what he thought would be the crisis of human, the greatest crisis of human history. And let me lay that out a little more precisely. In the 18th century, there was the Western European Enlightenment, and it reoriented human thinking, human society, and human commerce under the idea of rational enlightenment principles. The idea that the world was knowable, you could study it. Upon studying it, you could make predictions. And based upon that, there's a thing called an individual who's able to do this. And society's job is to unlock the power of this individual. This sort of thinking inevitably leads to the death of God. This is according to Nietzsche. God cannot exist in this knowable universe because what that knowable universe taught us is that the universe is made up of material. It is non-transcendental in nature. There is no metaphysical transcendental force guiding us. What's guiding us are these core philosophical principles that we can observe through the Enlightenment. Hence, there is no God. We have learned now that we have built a culture that is fundamentally nihilistic, according to Nietzsche, and removed the one incentive to not go mad in the face of that nihilism, which is getting to the real world, which is getting to heaven, which is the annihilation of the self so that you can get to this transcendental place that the Enlightenment is now telling you, by the way, it doesn't exist. Why? Because life evolves. It's been here for millions of years. What we believe does not hold up under these new modes of thinking. Hence, we are now going to be in what Nietzsche described as the crisis of our time. This crisis would bring European civilization to the brink of destruction, Nietzsche believed. It's interesting, and history itself may have a sense of irony, or maybe Nietzsche was 100% right, that it was not too long after Nietzsche's death that World War I happened, the Great Depression happened, and World War II happened. Despite all of this, Nietzsche did not believe that nihilism itself was bad, even though he was trying to craft a philosophy against it. And I will quote Nietzsche, I praise, I do not reproach nihilism's arrival. I believe it is one of the great crises, a moment of the deepest self-reflection of humanity. Whether man recovers from it, whether he becomes a master of the crisis, is a question of his strength. It is possible. I will also say that to Nietzsche, the only space in which nihilism can be overcome, given where humanity was at in the late 19th century, was through art. Art was the experience by which creating, disseminating, and living in aesthetics, not morality, could we come around and refute and defeat nihilism. Whereas Christianity and Plato and Kant, they're going to tell you what to do. Nietzsche was more in 
more about unlocking the human spirit through art. And I'll give another quote in his response to nihilism. A Dionysian yes to the world as it is, end quote. He wanted us to say yes to the world that it is. It wasn't actually a belief in nothing. It wasn't that it is meaningless. It is that if you devalue life itself, you are inherently nihilistic. Where do we go? What is the next step now that we have disproven the veracity of religion, which was the only thing holding what was already nihilistic together, if that makes sense? Absolutely. And you can start to see how this is laying the groundwork for later thinkers who will try to debate that question of what we do once we realize that there isn't meaning where we expected meaning to be. Indeed. After World War II, we have another addition to what we would consider, it's worth saying, from what I can tell, there is no nihilistic thought. It's not a neat school in the way that like Neoplatonism was in the late Roman Empire. And in fact, it's very nature of questioning the veracity of opinion, of meaning, of purpose, kind of makes it hard to turn it into an exact cohesive philosophy. But after World War II, in particular in France, there were a bunch of French philosophers who are sitting around reading Friedrich Nietzsche realizing that the Enlightenment rationality had killed God, and now here they are needing to rebuild after the two greatest wars of human history, and rightly so, pondering what's the point. And I'll give a quote from an article by a philosopher by the name Alan Pratt, who is summing up different forms of nihilism. This is, penetrating the facades, buttressing convictions, the nihilist discovers that all values are baseless and that reason is impotent. Inevitably, nihilism will expose all cherished beliefs and sacrosanct truth as symptoms of a defective Western mythos. This is the area the existentialists are playing in. They are saying, if Western civilization hit modernity and created technology, medicine, democracy, and its outgrowth is World War I and World War II, it was itself fundamentally flawed from the beginning. And how do we reconcile and move forward with this death and destruction? It is a defective Western mythos. These are the existential nihilists, such as Camus and Jean-Paul Sartre. Fantastic philosophers, by the way. In that, they ultimately conclude that the only thing that is true is your own individual desire and will to choose, and hence you must make a choice, and you will be in pain no matter what, but you will make a choice, and in that way, you can carve out some semblance of meaning. And this is where I want to correlate back to the big Lebowski. I see Walter as an existentialistic nihilist. Let me explain that. To Jean-Paul Sartre and Camus, you are free to make your own meaning, but you will not be free from pain. You will still feel immense pain and suffering, but at least you're free. And that's the only comfort that you can get. Let's take a look at the character Walter and see if existentialist nihilism in the Sartre and Camusian sense applies. One, Walter is in a religion he doesn't actually believe. He joined the religion 
because that's what his ex-wife wanted him to. And he clings to that religion despite the fact that he is no longer married to his ex-wife. His religion is itself an attempt to carve meaning out of a relationship that failed, though he doesn't actually truly believe that he's Jewish. In fact, many times the dude says, you're not Jewish. Two, he clings to a sense of arbitrary morality around the rules, and those rules in particular around bowling. He almost shoots someone over a dispute of these rules, pulls a gun and points it in his face because defending that rules is the way that he is creating meaning. He is in deep existential crisis, so much so that he acts impulsively, he acts brashly, and around him, despite his good intentions, is destruction, death, and chaos. He is living in an existential crisis. And if he were talking to someone like Sartre and Camus, they would tell him, accept your pain, start understanding that you're in pain, and then you will be truly free. But he is a character living through existentialistic nihilism. In my, uh, would you agree? What do you think? Sure, yeah, I think that's pretty convincing. So nihilism does continue. Oh, I have to do this. Because if we're thinking of existentialist nihilism and we're thinking of Walter and we're thinking of Donnie's death and the spreading of the ashes, one thing that the existentialist nihilists submit is that Western civilization was always nihilistic. And they point to certain things, but this came up in, in, the, in the quote, and I have to ring it out, to link things back to William Shakespeare. Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It's a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. That's excellent because that's a Macbeth quote, but then, of course, uh, Hamlet is quoted when scattering Donnie's ashes. So Walter quotes Hamlet and says, good night, sweet prince. Amazing. I love it. Now, modern nihilism has a new type of school. It's called anti-foundationalism, anti-foundationalist nihilists. They're more human. And I will quote that same essay that I read before. The philosophical, ethical, and intellectual crisis of nihilism that has tormented philosophers for over a century has given way to mild annoyance, or more interestingly, an upbeat acceptance of meaninglessness. The foundationalist nihilists say that there is no foundation by which we can build knowledge and truth. These are temporary things. Truth values are relational. A thing is only true in relation to the thing that it's untrue until that relationship changes. If that sounds confusing, try to put together the plot of this movie because a thing is only true. Bunny is kidnapped until it's not true. Oh, she kidnapped herself until it is true. No, I saw a toe. Hence it is true until it's not true. She's back at the, at the mansion. A thing is only true until its truth is a, is a relationship to the anti-foundationalists. The big Lebowski is a rich, successful man until it's turned out that he is frauding him until he says to the dude, you have your story and I have mine. Truth is fundamentally a relationship to the untrue and that relationship is itself in flux. But more importantly is that the 
anti-foundationalists don't look at nihilism as a philosophy of despair. Accept the meaninglessness and you can be happy. If you accept the, the meaninglessness and you can be happy, the dude. The dude is a nihilist. It doesn't matter what day of week it is, what day of the week it is. It doesn't matter if Bunny's alive or dead. He is mildly annoyed, as in the mild annoyance of the meaninglessness of nihilism when his rug is stolen. He tries to do something about it. It doesn't work out. And what does he do? He goes bowling. At the end of the day, the dude creates meaning through bowling with his other group of misfits and outcasts such as Walter and Donnie. The dude is an anti-foundationalist nihilist. I'll read one other quote that I think is applicable to the Big Lebowski. And let's remind ourselves that the very first scene of the Big Lebowski has George H.W. Bush explaining the war in Iraq. There is a war happening in America while these events are happening. And in fact, you have the dude dream of Saddam Hussein, and you also have uh, Walter mention Saddam Hussein with some racist terms that I won't repeat. So there's this looming conflict and this looming war. And this is something that an anti-foundationalist would believe. Raw power alone determines intellectual and moral hierarchies. It is a conclusion that dovetails nicely with Nietzsche, who pointed out that all interpretations of the world are simply manifestations of will to power. You have a will, that will gives you power, you can manifest a reality or truth in the world. Do we not see this in The Big Lebowski everywhere? Let's take one scene. The Big Lebowski, he asks a cabbie to change the music, and the cabbie will not change the music. In this, we have two characters with two separate wills, one with the will to listen to the song, one with the will to change it. Which character has power in that scenario? The cabbie. His will to power creates the truth that he will not change this music. It is his expression of nihilism. I'm trying to craft some meaning in this meaninglessness, and my power allows me to dictate the truth. Who has power in this is the person determining what is happening. And the one person that's powerless through all of it is the dude. And he is the one that is coping with the reality of nihilism the best because he accepts the meaninglessness. And hence, despite the fact that he gets beat up, he feels the least amount of emotional pain. Yeah, he is supremely unbothered by how powerless he is in the situation. Even when something profound, like the fact that he conceives a child happens, he is powerless as part of that. He's just a passive participant in the relationship with Maud. And he is inconvenienced or surprised when he finds out that she used him for uh, conception. But then he's kind of unbothered by it. He's just helping her conceive, man. I'd also just like to credit a few sources that I used. First is from Nietzsche's Shadow on the development of the term nihilism by Juan Luis Toribio Vasquez, a philosopher there. Alan Pratt, who wrote an article on the Encyclopedia of Philosophy about nihilism. Also, other things I pulled from Frederick Nietzsche's own writings, such as Beyond Good and Evil, 
as well as Jean-Paul Sartre and Existentialism and Human Emotions. So I just wanted to credit those sources. Excellent. Thank you for crediting those. What I think is fascinating about everything you've laid out here about nihilism and existentialism and how they relate to the Big Lebowski is where they intersect with that question I started with about American cinema and cinematic genre. And I think that we can see the relationship to the Western and film noir, but also to a couple of other genres that make appearances within the film. So the Western you think about as a very American form of cinema that had a golden age as uh, fiction and then later cinema in the 19th and then 20th centuries, of course, and was a very wide-eyed genre at first that was very hopeful about manifest destiny and the American dream and the frontier. And there, there were good and evil things. There were good and evil men. There were white hats and black hats. And as the genre evolved, it complicated itself and became grayer and grayer, especially in the 1950s post-World War II. Meanwhile, post-World War II, the emergence of film noir, these detective stories, these complex mysteries, these stories about the inherent darkness within the human spirit are in a direct relationship with the fact that the world has kind of just fallen apart and is figuring out how to rebuild itself. All of those things are also the potent soup where existentialism is making its home. They're all in conversation with existentialism and with nihilism. How do we confront a world that is not as meaningful or is perhaps entirely meaningless? We conform our stories to answer and ask those questions continuously. The Big Lebowski, however, as a movie made in the 90s, a time of relative prosperity, is responding to the Gulf War. And we have a character in Walter who is continuously preoccupied with his experience in the Vietnam War, which left a lot of people feeling like life was meaningless. Whereas before, these philosophies were emerging from European society. Later in the 20th century, and now in the 21st century, America situated itself as the greatest world power. And so these questions of existentialism are being reworked for a late 20th century America. And perhaps the best way to start articulating those questions and answers is with those very important and very American cinematic genres. The other thing I will point out, though, as we're talking about how German philosophy in Friedrich Nietzsche especially led to the development of nihilism and existentialist thought is gutter balls and is the dream sequence, which is my favorite part of this movie, hands down, and Maud Lebowski's costume, which is a very Wagnerian Viking opera uh, ring cycle type of garb. So it's paying a little bit of homage, I think, to the same world where Nietzsche is coming from, the, the world of Wagner. I completely love that and totally agree. Well, now that we've spent quite a bit of time in the West, in Europe and in the very West of the United States in Los Angeles, do you mind if I turn us toward a different direction, toward the East? Let us do it. There is actually a wonderful quote at the very end of The Big Lebowski when Sam Elliott's character, the cowboy, shows up in the bowling alley and says to the dude, sometimes you eat the bar and sometimes the bar eats you. And the actual aphorism is sometimes you eat the bear, etc. And there's some discourse about whether this is just the cowboy's dialect or if this is an antiquated uh, way of saying bear. It doesn't really matter. What he's really saying is you win some, you lose some. And the dude says, is that some kind of Eastern thing? And the cowboy looks at him with a smirk and says, far from it. 
And I think there's actually quite a bit to this idea that there is Eastern philosophy running through the Big Lebowski as well as Western philosophy. So I'd like to add it as a dimension to everything that you've laid out with nihilism and not necessarily as a rebuttal, just as another side of the coin. So there are obviously a lot of people who will look at this film and see the dude as sort of a slacker Jesus. And I think that is very intentional. He is often portrayed as a bit of a Christ figure. And even the cowboy says, I like knowing he's out there taking it easy for all us sinners, a different version, a 1998 version of dying for our sins. But there are also a number of places where I think the big Lebowski lines up with Buddhism. And I'm not the only one who thinks this. In fact, Jeff Bridges is very much in the school of thought that the dude is in fact a Zen master. And he and his friend Bernie Glassman, who is a Zen Buddhist Roshi, which is a title within Zen Buddhism, collaborated on a book called The Dude and the Zen Master. I'd love to share a quote from the first chapter of this where Glassman says, quote, an English philosopher said that whatever is cosmic is also comic. Do the best you can and don't take it so seriously, end quote. A wonderful way to think about the Big Lebowski as well as the cosmic joke that is existence. So very much in the vein of existentialism, absurdism, the things that you were just laying out. I like to think of the dude's journey, though, as the journey of a character becoming a Buddha, moving toward nirvana, moving toward enlightenment. And I think we can track this through his relationships to his possessions as the movie goes on. So what is the inciting incident of the film? It's somebody peeing on the dude's rug. And that sucks because that rug really tied the room together. The dude may not have a lot of possessions and especially not a lot of fancy possessions, but the ones that he has are really important to him. So if you're going to piss on his rug, he better get a new rug to replace it or at least some money so that he can go out and get a new one. So he's clearly perturbed by the destruction of this one possession. And we're introduced to him even in a supermarket where he is writing a check for half and half. So he is buying something. He is participating in capitalism. But what are some of the major tenets of the practice of Buddhism? It's all about the elimination of suffering, right? And if you listen to the Buddha, you understand that suffering is brought about by desire. And so to eliminate suffering, you have to eliminate desire. And I think we watch the dude's relationship to his possessions become more and more distant throughout the film. So, yes, he gets a new rug, but it kind of doesn't matter, right? The rug, in the end, did not really matter. His relationship to his car is interesting, too, because his car gets stolen, his car gets vandalized, he has so many horrible things happen to his car and to his credence tapes, but as the film goes on, he gets less and less bothered by further damage to his car and even participates in some of the damage to his car. And by the end, he goes bowling. The car doesn't matter. So I truly believe that he becomes more and more distant from those things that he desires, from those things that he possesses, and even the relationships that he has with people become less and less possessive. So he has a sexual relationship with Maud and even conceives a child with her, but feels no sense of possession toward either her or the child. And it's not portrayed as any kind of abandonment of responsibility. It's simply 
a gift of conception, and he will in no way move forward and claim Maud as his property because he has kind of eliminated that desire. Even when he loses his dear friend in Donnie, he's grieving for sure, but he does not grieve in such a way that he uh, presents it as a total loss. He moves forward and he goes bowling. So I tend to think that in addition to embracing this kind of optimistic nihilism, this anti-foundationalist anti-foundationalist nihilism that you were putting out, or perhaps this existential absurdism, he is also on the way to eliminating suffering by eliminating his desire. The dude abides on its own is a very zen sounding phrase. When you say you win some, you lose some. Or when you say, I'm sorry to hear about the loss of your friend, and he says, the dude abides, that means he's just getting along. He is a tumbleweed. He will move with the winds, and he will accept what comes his way without attachment and without unnecessary suffering because of those attachments or those desires. Yeah, that's really interesting. And one thing that we we have been debating is whether it makes more sense to understand this movie philosophically through the Western lens, the Eastern lens, or the theological lens. I think those are three different lenses that you can take. I think you outlined the Eastern lens really well. And the Western, the theological lens is is interesting because clearly the dude is dressed and made to look a little bit like Christ in his hair, in his beard. Mm -hmm. There are, are scenes where he is stretching like he's on a cross. He gets beat up a ton. And then the cowboy at the very end says he's taking it easy for all the sinners. Meanwhile, there's a character who's actually called Jesus in this, who is not Christ-like at all, and in fact is just a horrible human being in every way, shape, or form, but also absurd. And then there is the sort of bizarre relationship that Walter has to Buddhism, and how, I'm sorry, Judaism, his bizarre relationship to Judaism, in that he did it for his wife and doesn't really believe it and isn't really Jewish. And then you have all of the characters, such as Jackie Treehorn, the German nihilist, you have the big Lebowski, you have Maud, who are all kind of getting their hands into this conspiracy for the sake of power and money in one form or another, who don't really represent anything philosophical except for Maud, who is openly a feminist. And I think if this movie were a tragedy, if it were a drama, these different interpretations would be in conflict with each other, and we would probably not be able to make sense of it and be like, you know, this movie bit off more than it can chew philosophically. This is like, you know, a Zack Snyder movie where it's trying to say everything philosophically all at once and ends up saying nothing. But the fact that it's a comedy is really where this makes sense, because, of course, you can have a nihilistic Buddhist Christ figure in a comedy, those things aren't in conflict because the whole thing's a joke to begin with. Well, and what does the cowboy say? He refers to it as the whole darn human comedy. So he's looking at it with this lens of being outside of the story and observing all of this, almost as though he's God. 
uh, and saying, yeah, it's all kind of a joke. But there's also, you know, it's not just because it's a comedy that this works, but because Eastern philosophy and Western philosophy are not as far apart as we like to think, particularly when it comes to the relationships between Buddhism and existentialism. Both of these schools of thought are interested in the fact that suffering is a part of life and we are in control of how we manage our suffering. And both of them are concerned with ontology questions of what does it mean to be, what does it mean to exist, and how we alleviate that suffering. And they're all, uh, they're both interested in how we define the self. And though there are different practices or different branches or schools of thought associated with the the Buddhist school or with existentialism, they are all interested in the same questions. And in a lot of ways, most philosophy is interested in the same questions. Who are we? Why are we here? What do we do with the time that we're given? What comes next? But I think it's really interesting to see how those can all connect so humorously, so entertainingly in a movie like The Big Lebowski. And the dude himself is a bundle of contradictions in many ways. He's an aging hippie who does not have a job, who, again, is not necessarily to be admired for his lifestyle. We should probably all be able to pay our rent and go out of pocket 69 cents for half and half and not have to write a check. We should probably know what day it is. That is helpful for being a functional human being. But when it really comes down to it, the dude does abide. And maybe the best we can all hope for is to abide. We're not going to be perfectly happy on all days, but we're also not going to be perfectly miserable on all days. And his attitude toward life, his attitude towards suffering, I think is extremely admirable. I agree. And I think that's one of the mo- one of the endearing and enduring aspects of this character, why people keep going back to it, why people create a dudist philosophy. We are all stuck on this rock trying to figure out some semblance of meaning. And truthfully, you know, science tells us that most likely this has no grander purpose. And this is our one chance to ever make anything out of anything. And that makes us all scared and anxious and it makes us all feel pain. Those are real tangible realities that we all have to contend with. I'd like to think that there's a deeper meaning and some grand design and purpose that's guiding me through my life that means that my life means more than it does. The reality is that, at the very least, from what we know about how matter exists in the universe, that's probably not true. And it's probably not. Odds are that, you know, biological life and consciousness are just evolutionary accidents that happened in a complex system that probably happen in complex systems all the time before they snuff out and get and disappear, and it just keeps going and going. That's probably, that's most... It's most likely interpretation about philosophy if you believe in any semblance from, you know, enlightenment rational principles, which is why Nietzsche said God was dead. All of this is to say you have to figure out your way through it. And the dude is arguably doing it better than anyone. Yeah. And because he is arguably doing it better than me, this character who doesn't exist, because he doesn't feel the amount of stress that I feel. He doesn't feel the amount 
of attachment to material things, which then causes him pain when they're gone. And towards the end of the movie, he is in a better spiritual place than he is in the beginning of this. And because of that, it's no wonder we keep going back to the big Lebowski because our lives are hard and they're messy. We don't often have moments to pause and think about what does it mean and am I doing the right thing? And meanwhile, we look at a character who just abides and we're like, that dude figured it out. Absolutely. I think that is wonderfully well said. What else you got? Do you have any favorite moments or favorite lines from The Big Lebowski? I think when we do a comedy like this, we have to absolutely point out things that we appreciate the most. Um, well, wasn't prepared for that. So let me think favorite lines from The Big Lebowski. I mean, I almost laugh in stitches every time Walter attacks that kid's car. And, you know, this is what happened Amazing, when, you, yeah. when you F a stranger in the A. And that that's just actually every single scene with John Goodman is just amazing and hysterical. I love them all. So I'd say Walter's probably my favorite character. He's a great character. In it. And the one that I think, at, at the very least, the one that I think is one of the funniest. So I'll probably go with Walter in every scene. I love that. I already said that probably my favorite sequence in the movie is the dream sequence with the gutter balls movie. But my favorite part of that is when the dude is like this tiny little dude in this big like rock formation and he's coming out from behind the wall doing those dance moves and he's got that crazy smile on his face. It's just so incredibly surreal. And that's kind of the moment when I was like, this movie has more going on than I thought it did. Also, I love Maude and I love Donnie. Sweet, sweet Donnie. Every time he opens his mouth and says, I am the walrus, I am the walrus, I am the walrus. He's out of his element, but I love him. All right. Well, until next time, everyone, be kind. Good night, sweet prince. <laughs>